Welcome, this is Too Old For This Shit, where each week we dissect, discuss, and critique the best and worst of action movies from the 80s and 90s. You're listening to the podcast that puts critical thought into a mindless genre. Now, my name is Josh, and with me, as always, is my valiant co-host, Antonio. Hello, everyone. So, I grew up watching these movies, but Antonio... Seeing them... Did not. Yeah. (laughs) You're, You're coming to these films as a newcomer and but i'm just glad that you know i can share them with you and with the world well interestingly enough i'm pretty sure that the film we're reviewing today i have seen but it was a very long time ago and i barely remember any of it in the Um, womb (laughs) no well okay hold on i was alive when this film was released but i remember seeing it on vhs at some point um, but it was a very long time ago, and I as, yeah, don't remember it very well. Okay, well, it doesn't matter if you watch this on VHS or Blu-ray or if you're streaming it illegally off the internet, we're going to bring a freshness to this nostalgia. And, and this week's film is... Cliffhanger. Oh, yeah, baby. So it's a rock climbing film? Yep. Now, the thing... <laughs> and you, you've nailed it. <laughs> is this an over-the-top situation? As in over the top being the arm wrestling film that Stallone did. Is this them putting a star into something that may not necessarily be exciting and trying to make it super exciting? No, this is like this is this is a fairly exciting film. Like it's not no, it's not like something is boring like arm wrestling. <laughs> and they're like, man, we gotta really make this interesting. It's yeah, it's better it's better than that. It aspires to be more. Okay, cool. Um, I'm trying to remember. So you think you you have seen this film at some point? Yeah, I think I saw it on like year eight camp or something. I think I saw this first with my stepfather. I think he rented it. Right. And my mom like didn't really know what it was. She was like, oh, a rock climbing movie. And so I was allowed <laughs> to watch it. Yeah, right. What? Okay. It'll be uh, interesting to see whether or not that was a fair assessment for your mother to at make. At least it probably would have kept her awake because she falls asleep during a lot of movies. Right. Okay, cool. Looking forward to it. All right, let's uh, let's do this. So, how did Cloud ever talk it into climbing up to the tower? You told me it was better than sex. Really? What the fuck are you talking about? Where's the money? I burned it. Never could save anything. <sighs> I'm beginning to dislike this, Mr. Walker. Season's over, asshole! <laughs> Okay, and we're back. Yeah. Um, we got to hang out with Stallone for <laughs> yes. an hour and a half. Could you say that the stakes were high? They were. They were yeah. very high. Um, and then so, they fell very low. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get into that. No, so no. Um, this film is actually based on a novella written by a guy called John Long, who was a rock climber, and the novella was called Rogue's Babylon. So it was an adaptation of a short story. Um, so do you want to take us through, we'll take them through the plot of the film. Okay. So cliffhanger, uh, in brief is the story of Gabe Walker, a mountain rescue climber who runs away from his life after failing to save his best friend, Hal's girlfriend from falling thousands of feet to her death. Gabe comes back a year later to try and get his girlfriend and fellow mountain rescue person, Jesse back. 
Meanwhile, Eric Quaylen hijacks a plane with $100 million cash on board from the Denver Mint while the plane is in midair. Now, the perfect plan is foiled when a storm hits and the money gets dropped onto the Rocky Mountains of Colorado below. The bad guys then lure Gabe and Hal up the mountain to try and recover the stolen money, which is dotted around the mountain peaks. Uh, Gabe then escapes and must try to foil the increasingly distrustful and backstabbing bad guys plan while keeping Jesse and Hal alive. And it all ends with a giant fight on a helicopter hanging off a ravine. Your classic third act of a 90s action film. Uh, totally. Just, it's like everything builds up to that one point. It's a tiny bit paint by numbers, but we'll get into that. So to start off, the film was written by Michael France, who hasn't really written much else apart from GoldenEye, the Fantastic yeah, Four, and the first Hulk film. Marvel adaptations is mainly what he did. So is he still... No, he's actually dead. Right, there we go. Well, he did two of them. One of them was one a Razzie. <laughs> and then this script was actually nominated for a Razzie in 1994. This film was nominated for a Razzie. For a screenwriting Razzie in well, 1994. It's in, and it's his only original screenplay. Well, semi-original. Well, it's not even original. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, the, the scripted credits on this are weird because it says premise by John Long, yep. screen story by Michael France, screenplay by Michael France and Sylvester Stallone. So it's the screenplay is by Michael France and Sylvester Stallone, but it's with the word and, it's not an ampersand. Right. So that indicates that it is a subsequent draft that Stallone has worked on independent of Michael France. Oh, right. So when the you see more it, you know. So when you see it a script that has written by and it's Mr. A and Mr. B and there's an ampersand in the middle that denotes a writing team so right. those people have worked on the script together together so is that like a writer's guild thing yeah. right um stallone I, almost i would say unique among a lot of these action stars does write a lot of the films that he's in well and the, and the classic story of rocky being the film that he would only make if he got to write it and yeah, because he's, he's, well, he directs as well. Cause he's directed expendables as him. He writes and directs expendables movies. Right. Uh, there was another one actually directed by the same guy, Rennie Harlan driven where he's a race car driver. He wrote that, but he writes, and I think he's written some of the Rambo movies too, but he's generally involved in more than just the, yeah, he seems pretty hands on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and yeah, as you said, directed by Rennie Harlan, who has also directed Die Hard Two and a film that I'm looking forward to us watching, Long Kiss Goodnight. Rennie Harlan, The Pride of Finland. Right. <laughs> okay. The, the 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 best sort of filmmaking export of Finland. Yeah, he's there's there's two categories of Finnish filmmakers: Rennie Harlan and everybody else. <laughs> And so, so as we said, this stars Sylvester Stallone, who at this point has done five Rocky films and three Rambo films. So True. where is this in the Sylvester Stallone oeuvre? Well, he's actually coming off of two comedies back-to-back. -back, right. Uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Okay. And Oscar, another not-so-well-received film, um, a John Landis movie, though. Right. Uh, and another comedy, Rocky Five, but uh, I think that was unintentionally funny. <laughs> well, so so where are we at this stage in terms of like Sylvester Stallone fever, if there ever was one? Is this past the peak, Stallone? 
this is a moving into another phase. This is moving into a post-Rocky phase. Post-Rocky and, I will say, post-Rambo. So he's just finished two series. Yeah. So this is an original after him doing, well, eight films in, that are a, in two, a, a two franchises. Yeah, right. Okay. So, um, so it's a gear shift. So John Lithgow, pre-Third Rock from the Sun, John Lithgow. Yes. So... I mean, that's the only thing I know him from. And then, of course, like in Dexter and then a couple of other things. But like up until this point, who is John Lithgow? He's actually predominantly a stage actor. That's right. what he does mostly up until this point. He, has, he does do some films. He's in a couple of Brian De Palma films. And he actually does really good bad guys in some films, like Tuskegee Airmen. He's the bad guy in that. Right. But this is... I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I need a pickle with the amount of ham that he's putting on yeah. screen. The, the, the bad people in this are really, really, really bad and for, for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> and they just, for some reason, like give him, like, or he makes the character choice to have this quasi-British accent. I don't really understand why. Well, I've always found John Lithgow's accent to be kind of weird in that it seems to cross... The Atlantic a bit. He's got a bit of a mid-Atlantic accent. Yeah. Um, so that didn't throw me too much. Oh, it throws but he's me, just, you know, because he could do a good British accent. He's Winston Churchill on The Crown. Right. He can do it. It's but just, just, it's just crap. He just does a crap. I don't know why. And I love John Lithgow. Yeah, no, I think he's amazing. And to see him do such a hammy villain and having seen him before in, I don't know if you've seen him in Dexter. Um, no. As I think it's called the Trinity Killer. People pull me up on that. That is probably the best villain of that whole series. And he's haunting. It is amazing. But Cliffhanger, it's, yeah. He could do it really well. Yeah, like his his performance in Raising Cain is spectacular. He's a former government agent, according to the story. Who just decided to make position. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Sergeant Exposition tells us. Name is Eric Whalen. We've been tracking him for some time now without much success. He's a former member of military intelligence who's found out it's more profitable going to the other side. Industrial espionage, hijacking diamonds from South Africa, theft and disposal of millions in negotiable bearer bonds, you name it. He has the international connections to move this currency, Mr. Wright. And a hundred million dollars offers one hell of a temptation to this psychotic. <laughs> Classic. But like, there's no other reason as to why he's so evil. He just wants to make money, yet he's killing all of these people and does not give a shit about anyone. Yeah. And then also his henchmen are exactly the same. Like, the guy who gets killed on the stalactite is so full of rage. And it's like, man, you just, maybe you just need to talk to someone. Mm. Just talk to someone for five minutes and, and figure out what really is the problem. Yeah. The guy who got killed on the stalactite, uh, Leon... From one of my favorite movies, Cool Runnings. He's the oh. captain of the Jamaican bobsled team. Oh my team. god, I did That's not recognize guy. him. <laughs> so maybe after Cliffhanger, he was like, I need to chill out a little bit. Join the Jamaican bobsled team. Wow. Yeah, it's the same guy. That's amazing. I don't, I'm not sure which film came out first. Yeah, no, that would definitely be worth checking, but that's, that's unbelievable. And also the Englishmen, like they're just, they're just so angry. And even the, the government agent who basically orchestrates most of the plan. Travers. Yeah, Tra- Travers. He just becomes 
totally angry. But granted, you if know, you he had worked this for the government that long, you'd be angry too. Yeah. You know? Okay. If anything, he has. He's the only character that necessarily has the development, or at least a little bit of development for you to go. Okay, he's been working with the government for so long. This is his ticket out, and it's all gone to shit. And he loses it at the end. Like, like he, totally. Yeah, loses it. he loses it. Like he's like. The mission's blown. I'm just gonna kill Walker. Like he just like is like I'm done. And so he just becomes sociopathic, and he's like he's on a mission just to kill Gabe for no reason other than he screwed up. Well, I guess that is a pretty good reason. But Travis, you've lost your mind. Lost? Have I lost it? Fucking a, I've lost it, Quinn. Pure fucking section eight. I gotta go. I'm on my last official manhunt. Adios, motherfucker. But I, but there is so much killing. Like I couldn't quite figure out why Lithgow killed the other pilot. Like that didn't make any sense to me at all. Because why kill someone on your side who, you know, now he's by himself. So it's just easy enough for him to get be. Dead. Yeah, but like, he so he kills her right. because she is the only one besides him who can fly the helicopter. So if he right, kills okay. her, then Travers can't double cross Quaylen okay. because then Travers can't get off the mountain. See, I feel like that was the most complicated plot point, but also the most insignificant of the whole film then. Because <laughs> it's like it's 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 actually quite clever now that you've explained it. I get it. But for everything else in the film, it feels like more thought was put into that than the rest of the, <laughs> than, than the, rest of the script. Yes. Well, uh, other players in the film, Janine Turner as Jessie, yep. who's basically playing the exact same character that she does on Northern Exposure. Right. Just the a token less, girlfriend. Uh, well, no, actually, her, her character on Northern Exposure is actually quite fleshed out and really good and sassy. Right. Um, this is her character from Northern Exposure with all the fun taken out. Because <laughs> she's a bush pilot in Northern Exposure. Right, okay. So she's a helicopter pilot so she, in this. So she's being typecast as well, a helicopter it, they're, pilot. And they're filmed at the same time. Like this is, she's filmed Cliffhanger on a break from Northern Exposure. Right. So it's it's really like, she just bizarre. changes like her jacket. Like that's about it. I mean, and I mean, yeah, her character is purely there to service the plot. Yeah, well, she, we'll, we'll get in. I have a few more notes on that, <laughs> but yeah. Look, the cinematography in this is really cool. There are a couple of shots that I really, really enjoyed. One of them was in the opening scene where um, I'm pretty sure it is actually Stallone climbing this mountain to rescue Hal and his girlfriend, and the helicopter camera, like, goes from him and then pulls out and tracks up and reveals the couple, and, like, it just shows that they're actually there. This thing looks super dangerous and they're stuck. Like, it really emphasised the isolation and the dangers as well as how impressive th this guy climbing is. Like, I, I, that was really cool. And there was another shot just before the avalanche later in the film that was really interesting. They're tracking up... Like this whole thing of like moving the camera and tracking up the mountain is really good and it helps to establish a space. A lot of that sort of stuff in this film was done quite well. Mm. And really I good use of that. long lens and deep focus, even in just, even in actually the really simple, you know, 
just dialogue scenes between like when Gabe comes back to talk to Jesse about, Hey, let's get back together, you know? And she's like, I haven't seen you in a year. Even the way that's covered, you know, there's that really good pull out at the end. Yeah. Uh, and the dog comes the to dogs. him and he pets the dog. Yeah. It's like, we never see that dog ever again. No. <laughs> Whose dog is that? <laughs> but yeah, no, there was, um, yeah, I felt like it, it was, there was some really good shooting and editing choices made in the film that, that helped it. Um, a few good death scenes. Yeah, yeah. I genuinely enjoyed uh, seeing Leon get thrust into the stalactite. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. I really, <laughs> that was awesome. There's pieces like that that are really well done. And also the, the hijacking scene. Like that yeah. was really well done. I mean, now we live in a world where The Dark Knight Rises has been made and there's that plane hijacking scene, which is unbelievable. But um, the one at the, it's sort of in the, the first act of this film is, is really, really impressive. Um, I thought that was really cool. Turns out, most expensive aerial stunt ever. The guy who went across the cable between the two planes got paid a million bucks for that stunt. Nice. <laughs> All he had to do was fly between two. I could do that for a million bucks. <laughs> what do you have to do? Just hook, you know, hook your carabiner on and slide down. And just like start sliding down. The, oh, like, yeah, I felt like they, they put the right amount of effort into making it look. Mm. The set pieces are good. I, I couldn't really point out any faults in the set pieces. I mean, yeah, I knew when it was a soundstage and when it was an actual location, but it didn't it's not bother that, me but that There's much. not that much on the soundstage, though. Oh, a lot of that opening scene is on the soundstage. A lot of it. Like, all the dialogue is. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> and it's those kind of things. A lot of, a lot of those are. Um, but yeah, no, it didn't really stand out, which I thought was good. Um, going back to the plane though, one bit of the story that I, that kind of really worked for me was the shootout in the plane. When we find out, um, who it is that's helping out with the hijacking was genuinely confusing and intriguing because you got the new guy from the FBI and you're like, oh, well, he's going to be the dude who's going to unravel all of this. But actually, no, it's not. It's the guy who's been with the company for 25 years. But there's this cool little moment for about 10 seconds where everyone's pulling out guns and you're not actually sure who is who, who's right, who's wrong, who's actually trying to get the money. And that was that kind of set it up quite well and then I think, sort of the intrigue kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> Ten minutes into the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, one sort of John Lithgow takes off his mask is when all that yeah. kind of went out the window. When, once they get on the mountain, it's basically we're moving from set piece to set piece. Yeah, exactly. It's not bad, but it's not great. Yeah, no, I it, going into it not expecting something amazing, you go, oh, that was a good ride. But I really do feel like the final scene kind of undoes a bit of that goodwill. Yeah, it's I can just, see what you're saying. It's, there's so many choices that the characters make that make no sense and are clearly there just to escalate that final act, or that, that final scene. Um, yeah, but overall, I, it was fine. It's, it's not going to stand the test of time. But it's, you know, if it came up on TV and I had nothing else to watch, I wouldn't mind it. For me, in a way, the reason why it can stand the test of time is because there is literally, you know, nothing but the plot. Now, I'm not saying it holds up as a good movie, <laughs> but the film itself holds up because yeah. they're out in the elements and there's nothing like, 
you know, cell phones, like even, even if you made this film today, you would just go like, oh, the cell phones don't work because there's yeah, no exactly. tower. There's no reception. Boom. So, so you've just eliminated that, you know, plot element, but it's, so it's, it can play just as well today as it does then because it's not tied. It's, it's so much in the elements. It's in the mountain that it doesn't tie to any specific time and place. In terms of for its time, because I was, I was interested to know, you know, how well something like this was received. It was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Supporting Actor for John Lithgow and Worst Screenplay at the Razzies in 1994. Didn't win any, but was on the list, which, which actually genuinely surprised me. It, it surprised me too hearing that because... Yeah, I mean, in in the cultural context, like John Lithgow was like a really respected actor at that time, and right. for him to be doing this movie is a little bit out of left field. I think he was a last second casting choice, but I'm not sure. Would have to get a fact check on that, right? Because I felt like I just I'm surprised at how much flack it seemed to have gotten, you know, in 1994. Because watching, I'm like, a lot of it I feel like I can forgive because it was a film made in the 90s. Well, the, one of the things that really dates it to me, aside from the extreme sports guys, which... <laughs> Actually, yeah, I can't that is one I of the mentioned few, them yet. <laughs> that is one of the few things that really stands out as like, I'm like, okay. This- For some reason, as soon as they popped up, I was just like, yeah, fine. Like, I, I just totally forgave that they existed. And I don't think I should have. Like that really does date the film, and they're just terrible. Like they're just cliche, it's just straight out of the cliche handbook. For some reason, this makes me feel like such a stupid young person. I watched it and was like, "Well, maybe people were like that back then." I don't know. I remember there was a lot of fluoro in the nineties, <laughs> and I just let the film go on its merry way. I totally forgot they were in there. Yeah, the the base jump because they're base jumpers. That's yeah. who they are in the film. They're totally radical base jumpers. Yeah. And they're like talking about like MTV. Like, <laughs> yes, that's right. Where would you rather be right now? You're in Tent City or at home playing some righteous air hockey? Air hockey's definitely got my vote. Exactly, Cheesehead, exactly. And that's just clearly lobbed in there to appeal to the younger audience. Yes. Is that what it is? Or something. I don't know. Like, I don't think younger audiences look at those guys and be like, man, I really want to be like them. <laughs> Yeah, that was it was weird because it was almost as like they were, I guess, a strike between comic relief and also, yeah, like something to appeal to the young people, maybe. I guess. Like, I don't know. Like, they, they're they really, I mean, like I said, they just come straight out of the cliche handbook. They're basically only there to create one more obstacle on the mountain or what they're, they're just two more guys who potentially can get killed that Gabe has to protect on the mountain. Yeah. And oh, they kind of help build Gabe's character at the start of the film as well. Cause they establish how much of a legend he is in Colorado amongst, you know, the rock climbers and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And then they just happen to be there as well. Like, and they get snowed in by the storm. So they're still up there. Like, yes. It's, it's a it's an opportunity for them to do the to see a base jump on the film. Fun fact though, yeah, on the base jumpers um, parachute mm. is a Finnish flag. Ah, Rennie, there you go, Rennie tipping his hat to the motherland. <laughs> now, I'm surprised I- they didn't have like a Nokia ringtone like that guy. <laughs> 
I'm trying to remember, did that guy actually survive? It's unclear because he gets shot and the the dialogue says that... Because um, he gets cut down, gets cut down by the by old Frank. dude. Because you know, the, the wolves are going to eat him. And then does Frank put him in the helicopter? Yeah, they, they take him. That's what it is. So Frank so takes he's him. he's dead. <laughs> they t- no, they take him to... Oh. He's dead. He's is totally he on the, dead. They never explain whether he's off the helicopter. No, no, no. He, no, he said because he says... Frank says uh, he's at the hospital with a gunshot wound in his back. I remember that. Now. Good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that line of dialogue saved our radical base jumper's life. <laughs> the other guy didn't have quite a bodacious end. No. Well, Bill and Ted's epic fail base jump. <laughs> that was the spinoff. It never sh- happened. They did. They couldn't get out of development stage. No. Yeah, like, I mean, because here's the thing about this movie is that it, in a sense, follows a bit of the Die Hard template, but p- plays liberally with the template. Oh, the idea that a man is, who gets thrust into a situation. Well, the, the Die Hard template is essentially a sealed environment, a hero that's overlooked or thought to be dead. Uh, the hero is then is disadvantaged in some way, and but then there's also a ticking clock element as well. Yeah. So this has all of those. Yeah, right. But the hermetically sealed environment is the mountain. Yep. And and the storm kind of keeping them in to a yeah, certain extent. So that's the environment. The lone hero, that's Stallone, but he's disadvantaged by having his coat taken and all of his gear taken. See, see, that was the thing I didn't really feel that while watching the film. It's like, okay, he doesn't have his coat, but it doesn't really seem to slow him down because he doesn't really seem overly affected by the snow. Well, he almost dies. Like that's when he goes into the little cabin and that's where he reunites with Jesse on the mountain. Yeah. But you see, that doesn't even really seem like he's close to death at all. I I felt like that wasn't emphasised enough that that's how close he was to dying. Like it just... I reckon that that's probably a fault of Rennie's in a way and that the way it was put together, I just didn't feel those stakes at all. It's just like, ah, he's cold. But yes, logically, he should probably be dead. You see on the night vision goggles, there's, yep. a, there's a temperature and it's minus nine degrees Celsius. Like it, but you don't actually see those until after he meets up with Jesse in the cabin. But I mean, but just but, what I'm saying in a sense of like, if that's where the temperature is hanging, yeah. you could not survive outside well, then in it, a t-shirt. Then explain why he then dives into a frozen lake and takes his shirt off. Uh, that is because he, you would sink. In those situations, uh, you do want to, you want to take as much weight off you. Right. Because if you're holding that weight, you'll you'll drown. See, that's the thing. I watch him taking his clothes off. I'm like, dude, you're going to, first of all, you're probably going to die because you're already in there, but you're going to take your clothes off as well. Like I'm sure there's probably some crazy scientific reason as to why taking the clothes off actually is helpful. Well, probably not. <laughs> but probably not. Like it just, yeah. That's what went my, through my head is that like if he takes off his shirt, then he's not going to sink more because of the weight of the clothes. Right. Which, okay. And if you are in a hypothermia situation, you actually are supposed to get naked. Well, that's, I, in the back of my head, that's what I was thinking. I thought I knew that and now you've repeated it and that actually makes sense. I think that's probably what it was. That, yeah. So, but anyways, this, like I was saying, this sort of loosely follows the diehard template. Yeah. 
but they play with the form a lot. So right. he's, he's thought dead several times. They keep overlooking him. He's disadvantaged by like having the old gear, like the old rope that he steals from the cabin. Oh, which, yes, yeah, splits in half. Yeah, so all those elements. So those are the kind of the diehard elements and the ticking clock element of, you know, they got to pull off this robbery relatively quickly. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to be able to get away with the money. Well, I feel like one of the reasons, I guess, it doesn't rise to be as strong as Die Hard in that way is that they're already in a crazy situation. It's they're rock climbing. So it gets to the point where you kind of, sure, you've seen him do it with the gear and now you're seeing him do it without the gear, but I didn't really feel like there was any difference there. Whereas I guess in Die Hard's situation, it's just a building, but he's barefoot glass gets shattered and he's running over it like it's it's a familiar situation for us which then gets totally turned on its head whereas with rock climbing we all just go wow these people are superman um i just don't think it works well that's that's the element that they are playing with is that stallone is in his environment where the bad guys are out of their environment so then it's yeah so it doesn't that underdog element doesn't quite work yeah but that's what i'm saying this is the, the template is there but it's the form is played with very liberally. Almost as if they've misunderstood what works with that form. Well, I mean, look, do we, but do we want to have, or we did in the 90s, have like just rubber stamp diehards coming out yeah, every several exactly. years? <laughs> so I think playing with the form actually works to their advantage. The fact right. that Gabe is in his element and the bad guys are out of their element, despite the fact that Gabe is disadvantaged from the point of view of he has no weapons. Yeah, okay. He has to defeat them using zero weapons. Yeah, which is, which, yeah, that's probably the one thing that's impressive because does he shoot a gun at all apart from the bolt gun thing? That's it. No, yeah. he never he never actually fired. That's, I think, and this is, I think, actually the strength of the film is that he never fires a gun aside from the phony bolt gun at the end he yeah he uses his axe or his little knife or the stalag stalactite death that was like but see that's a good example is he's getting the crap beat out of him by leon he's not a fighter but he's rope-a-doping him in a way Like he picks his moment and then bang. Right. It's just rocky all over again. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> right, all right. Like even in the water, it's a similar thing. Like he falls in the water. No, he... Actually, no, that's not the same. But <laughs> the stalactite scene is almost a classic rope-a-dope because okay. he's just waiting for the right moment. Right, you're, you're, you're putting a lot more thought into this boxing metaphor than I did. I just thought he's getting his ass handed to him and he's just like, he uses the only thing that, he, that a rock climber would know, the stalactite. But like he's, does he ever even make an attempt to def, to defend himself? I guess he does get a couple of swings in, at some point. Yeah, but no, he doesn't. He's just getting his ass handed to him. Yeah, right. 
But yeah, he's using like his technique to defeat the bad guys is actually to destroy the money because he knows once if he gets rid of the money, they'll, you know, theoretically go away. But then, yeah, I understood that. But part of me was also like that takes away your bargaining chip as well. Then they have no reason not to kill you. If you're able to yeah. bargain with them with the money. But then again, it's also they needed them to get off the, the mountain. That yeah, was, that exactly. Was, yeah. So uh, one other point I do want to bring up in the cultural context is, as you, as we have somewhat alluded to earlier, is the role of women in this film yes. is basically for the plot. Yeah, no, no, no that no. they only exist for the plot. There's the one woman who is there as a motivation for Stallone's character and the other woman who is, yeah, just another pilot. It was, yeah, she... Like it was fine, but even going further back to the very beginning, who dies? Oh yeah, the girlfriend. She's only there. She's solely there to make Gabe feel guilty. Like that that was the real kicker to me. And yeah, that's that's so terrible. You know, Jessie is there because she can fly people around, but at the yeah, at the end of the day, she's there so that Stallone has a you know has a person to save. Exactly. At the end of the film. Um, I mean, she's kind of she's a little bit stronger. Like, I mean, it, it, and this is the thing. I in in some ways, while Cliffhanger does this very badly, there are elements where they're actually moving in the right direction in the sense that jesse is a helicopter pilot she is capable of doing things she's a mountain climber herself yeah she she does a bit of the climbing but gabe is clearly the better climb but she's not incompetent she's not purely the damsel in distress she's not she's not kate um capshaw from (laughs) indiana jones and the temple of doom well not until she waves at the helicopter and you see John Lithgow pointing a gun at her from outside the helicopter. Cut to she's in the helicopter. Like, can't you just run away? What's the helicopter going to do? If he's still in the helicopter, by the time he tries to land it and chase you, you're gone. Yeah, that is bad. <laughs> it's from that point that the, the film's plot went downhill. Yeah, okay, well, let's, let's, let's get into the filmmaking. Let's, let's get into the... Well, can we uh, just unpack the final scene? The, let's the, talk about we, let's we, talk about process. process. All right, <sighs> let's talk about process. We'll start with the final right. scene. Do we want to start? <laughs> let's with, no, no, I'm happy let's, to start you. Okay, okay. There are so many. This the final conflict is totally contrived. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Every almost every decision or most of the decisions the characters make just escalate the plot. The girl had no reason to be captive in the helicopter for starters. No, and how does she possibly think that John Lithgow is going to shoot her from within the helicopter cockpit? Like exactly. he's pointing the gun on the inside of the glass. Exactly. Like it just he can't you can't shoot like even if he does shoot, you know, from the inside of the glass and like maybe kind of hit her. Like that's it would be at his disadvantage 
for him to shoot in that situation. So there's that. And then, hold on, I've written these down. <laughs> Why does, okay, go, go okay. through your list. Go through so, your list. So helicopter's hovering. They're trying to do the exchange. Um, he drops her off with the, the, the winch cable thing. Yeah, and, and why? <laughs> Look, fine. No, no, no. It's the next thing. Okay, so obviously I could, you could see it coming a mile away. He's going to attach the cable to the ladder. Hilarious idea. Amazing. It's totally going to fuck up John Lithgow's day. I love it. Why climb the fucking ladder to escape from the helicopter? There's a whole mountain away from the chopper. Chopper follows. Goodbye, chopper. Because it's not going to be able to fly any further. All right? Yeah. Okay. So, so fast forward, bad. Stallone is hanging off of this fucking ladder that is being suspended by a helicopter. Or oh, what does Hal do? Shoot a shotgun at the helicopter. <laughs> the the thing-, thing that's keeping your friend alive, just destroy it. It'll be fine. And then, of course, when the helicopter does land on the cliff face, it doesn't blow up. But then when it lands on the ground... It blows up. That's the rule in 90s action movies. The helicopter only blows up when the director says so. At every major decision made in that film was... Sh- in the, Sorry, not film. In that scene was stupid. Yeah. You have no... I can't defend that at all. It is, is, but the fact that also that John Lithgow lets Janine Turner off the helicopter. Why does he do that? That's his bargaining chip. At that point, Stallone has zero reason to give him the money. I mean, True. And, you, and you could see it from a mile away. He's going to throw the money into the helicopter blade. Well, see, I actually, I actually didn't think about that at all. I, I thought, okay, look, it could be a genuine exchange. You know, sue me for being I think too it's because I've seen it before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. no, but I think at times I also watch a film and I, I am far too naive of what would be a better option. But, yeah, it just... It was clearly they wrote... It's almost as if they said, all right, Lithgow and Stallone are going to fight on the helicopter suspended off of the cliff. How do we get there? Yeah, they work backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and then once they got there, they've gone, cool, let's have an early finish for today. Let's go to the bar. Like there was no <laughs> looking over of that part. Up until that point, I, was, I didn't have too much of a problem with the plot of the film. It was just, yeah, that that whole thing just totally unraveled the whole thing and made sense for it to get a nomination for worst screenplay. Well, and like we actually, what you said there was really apropos because, like, I have the exact same criticism. I can't really fault the plot, but the thing that this movie really falls down on is not plot but character. Right. Yeah. yeah. There is zero character, and when I say zero, literally, I think the only people who mention stuff outside of the plot are the extreme base jumpers or and frank because he does the paintings but there's almost nothing in these characters that exists outside of the plot they never talk about anything really <laughs> but doesn't that the plot yeah but isn't that what makes this film timeless like we were saying before it works to its advantage and to its disadvantage right it cuts both ways. But then otherwise, these characters are basically just molds. Like you've got Stallone's damaged hero, his best friend who he's not really friends with. Like they're just these very archetypal characters that have nothing to them. 
she, the, the angry ex-girlfriend or the bitter ex-girlfriend who's upset that he ran away and is coming back for her. Yeah, that was interesting, her reaction, because it does, the title card does say eight months later after that whole thing happens and then he's driving back and meets up with her and she's giving him shit for disappearing. But he dropped someone. How traumatic would that be? Yeah, I get it. I mean, I, I, but this is this is my criticism is that like they literally don't talk about anything except for what's happened in the plot that we've seen. Oh, you know, what I'm saying is that I think that she is not very fair on him oh, in, right. <laughs> in that scenario. It's just a... Give him a break, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, that's he exactly dropped what a woman. I was thinking. And her, and her stuffed dog toy too. Yes, nonetheless, yeah, yeah. You know? Like, She's totally, not getting buried with that. It was... Yeah, I... Couldn't quite get around why she was so angry with him. And that was out of that moment we got that classic line. I haven't climbed in months. You just lose the feel. And then she comes back with... Maybe you mean the nerve. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. And then immediately apologizes. Well, actually, a a good example of the characters having zero existence outside of the plot is with those two extreme base jumpers. So when Gabe comes back, he goes, they go, where have you been, Gabe? And he's like, I've been in Denver working. And his job is never named. Yeah, we have no idea what the fuck he's been doing for eight months. And that's exactly it, is that these characters have zero existence outside of the plot. Michael Rooker, uh, Hal, who's also Yongu from Guardians of the the Galaxy. That's what I recognized him from. Always wants to eat Chris Pratt. (laughs) Uh, he's also um, in an indie film called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, where he plays this really scary, like, it's like a psychotic serial killer. Yeah, right. Anyways, <laughs> um, he's angry at Stallone because of his girlfriend's death. Yeah. There's zero talk of anything about else. anything else. Except for Frank. Frank has more... <laughs> He's the only one who has an existence outside of the plot. And he's in the film for 15, 20 minutes. Like he flies the helicopter at the start, then he flies and picks up the rad dude, and then he gets killed by John Lithgow. And that's it. But again, he's there to service the plot. So like why they threw in the whole thing with him painting at the ranger station, you know, in the beginning, it doesn't... I'd like to think that maybe there's some stuff that Stallone wrote that just got ripped out and that was one of the things that was left look it's possible i mean obviously i reckon there is probably a whole bunch of stuff that it was changed and it was paired back and probably a lot of film executive meddling now in terms of where this was filmed most of it was actually filmed in italy it wasn't actually filmed in colorado oh we (laughs) we Yes. Uh, so, or should I say, Mamma Mia? Yeah, there you go. But I did feel like there were quite a few bits that were still done on a soundstage. Like, I would probably estimate this was probably 60% on location, this film. Whereas, I yeah. feel like a lot of the dialogue and stuff was, 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 was purpose built soundstage stuff. And obviously, the cave stuff had to be. Yeah, cave is obviously a soundstage. The. Um, the water where he still goes into the water and shoots the gun up, the bolt gun up, that's yep. obviously a stage. And actually the bridge they blew up is a real bridge that they blew up and then had to rebuild right. in Italy, which is, I feel like this was quite a big film in terms of budget. 
like as we said before, there was the million dollar stunt man for the plane transfer scene, which I think that was a pretty impressive stunt altogether. That's um, a that's a great set piece, and, yeah. and a lot of the set pieces are still very good. They still hold up. Yeah, for sure. Except for like some of the green screening of like the girl falling in the opening scene, like that. It's fine, but doesn't work by today's standards. Yeah, that is very classic 80s and 90s. I mean, because in RoboCop, Dick Jones falls off the the tower like that. You know, it's the kind of like the it's wailing the your arms. arms flailing and the legs flailing behind yeah. like some kind of matte painting or whatever. And it's just, the, the yeah, they're not quite dropping right. Um, but, yeah, I think, again, it's that case of, because they couldn't really depend on CG for the film because it wasn't really great back then, most of it is really, really good and really impressive, mm-hmm. except for those few moments where you can really see the edges. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's to me what makes this film hold up. The, the fact that there is no character makes this essentially a forgettable film. Yeah, no, there's nothing to hold on to. You don't but go it's like, not bad. No. Except for the ending. <laughs> Yeah, I, we could point to the ending and be like, "That is really contrived." But there's nothing really bad in the filmmaking. The process is fine. The shots are good. Yeah. The cinematography is good. The acting is passable. It's what you would expect. But there's because there's zero character. There's nothing to hold on to. Look, Let- o- overall, I wasn't expecting a masterpiece, but I kind of enjoyed it, even though the villains were like. Overly evil. That was the thing that stuck out for me the most. The only thing he's missing is a mustache twirl. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and like a monocle or something. Yeah. Um, but I guess it kind of makes me think you could make a high stakes and exciting rock climbing film. I think the the pieces that they put together for that story were a decent idea. Obviously, yeah, the script wasn't great. Execution was better than the script probably deserved in some parts. I mean, that's that would be my kind of final thoughts on it, is that while it doesn't seem to me that, like... Like, it's, it's actually a film that I think could be remade. This is, this is a film that I think could be remade and improved upon. It could, it could be remade in the sense that there's not enough of any character anything for people to hang on to to be like hey man you screwed up my childhood no one's gonna look at this and that's that's a fair point but i think if you did remake it how much of it is just gonna be cg bullshit and you're not gonna be as impressed by the set pieces you're not gonna see the squibs go off near that rabbit and nearly (laughs) (laughs) the poor rabbit yeah (laughs) Actually, no, the rabbit didn't die. It's not poor. It was fine. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, So final review, I will give this five out of ten plunges to the death. I would give it five out of ten stalactites to the sternum. Oh, excellent. Ouch. (laughs) And I mean that in terms of both the review and the... Five out of ten is not that bad. No, it's not. (laughs) It's passable. It's a passable action movie. It's fine. Okay. Anyways, this has been Too Old for This Shit. And finally, before we leave you, we, of course, must do the obligatory social media plug. Like us on Facebook at TOFTS Podcast and follow us on Twitter at TOFTS Podcast to stay up to date and send us any movie review suggestions. Make sure you also subscribe on your podcasting app of choice and leave us a review. It helps. It really does.
Yeah. I've swum with clothes on before. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. You just like jump in the pool with your jeans on? I actually, no. As part of swimming lessons, we had a lesson like every month where we'd have to swim with clothes on. Just, it was like a safety thing. Was this some kind of torture? Like torturing children? It was really difficult.